Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Hees, and with me, my co-host, Jesse Burnham. How are you tonight, bud? Hey, what's going on, man? How are you? Uh, busy. Busy, busy. Just got the kids down about, oh, I don't know, two minutes ago? Nice. Yeah, so trying to uh, give the, the wife a night a night off tonight and... Uh, do all this stuff at the same time, so. Good man, good man. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it can be a job, that's for sure. Yes, sir. So, what you been up to? Not much, man. Just basically the same as last time. Still working. Uh, work, work, work. That's all I've been doing. I've had a lot of, Boring. A lot of big bosses. And, oh, I know. It's horrible. <laughs> um. I actually randomly shot my bow yesterday. Wow. Or no, Tuesday. I don't even know what day it is. One of the days this week I shot my bow, which felt good. Uh, was shooting pretty good. So hopefully get out for turkey season here in the next couple of weeks if I have time. Okay. Now, did you just shoot it for turkey season or because you were moving and you're kind of going through your stuff or what? Yeah, I was just kind of going through my stuff in the basement and, I was like, I should probably shoot my bow if I plan on using it because I haven't shot it in, what, four months? Yeah. So. Yeah, that's a good point. How'd you shoot? Good. Shot real good. I'm actually kind of sore, those side muscles. You know, you're not used to using them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's something I'll be well, doing all summer is uh, retraining myself to shoot, for sure. Or I'm just getting old, I think. Yeah, well, that happens, too. Yeah, yep. You been doing any habitat work or what? No, not really, uh, sadly. Um, you know, at, at uh, this stage of life, I feel like everything's getting in the way of fun. So um, luckily we get to have this phone call and do this podcast so I can at least talk about it, <laughs> and, like and, it. and learn some things, even though I'm not uh, executing them right away, but it's all right. Well, when you're ready to execute, you'll be uh, more prepared, right? 
Exactly, exactly. Yeah, well, I haven't been um, up to much more than you. I I did manage to grab some soil samples. Um, so those are drying out right now. going to send those in. But other than that, I planted some trees in my backyard, but I'm not sure if that counts. So In your backyard? Where? You have no room back there. Yeah, I'm... Uh, Clearing out some of the like the sassafras trees and whatnot back there, and I'm, I planted a row of uh, twenty spruce trees along that fence. So, be a nice little. Oh, nice! How tall? Uh, they're about three foot right now. So, um, maybe two to three foot, depending on which one you look at. So. Nice. Where did you pick those up at? Yeah, a few years from now. That lady you tagged me on Facebook. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah! It seemed like a decent deal. Yeah, I got them for like seven bucks a piece. So um, hopefully they they'll live and uh, and be a nice little row of trees back there in what five years, ten years probably. I don't know. Yeah, block that pesky neighbor you have back there. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if he's listening. Probably not. Yeah. Yeah, but no. <laughs> well, know. that's good. Uh, you, you you spent money on worse things, so. Mhm. So who we got today on the line? Who who we talking to today? His name is Ty Miller. Um, he My owns, bourbon boy. I was going to say, are you friends with him on Facebook? Do you know him? Yeah, he's my bourbon condensure. Oh, yeah, you he's guys drink bourbon. He's always drinking bourbon. Yeah, we'll have to ask him about that. I, uh, I, think I, I poured a glass. Him. I, I just I got a glass standing by to pour just for this podcast. Oh, very nice. Well, shoot, why are, why don't we uh, stop wasting time and call him up? That way you can start. All drinking. right, sound, sounds good. <laughs> All right, stand by. All right, and before we get started, I just wanted to mention I do apologize for a little bit of static in this episode. It looks like we had a little bit of uh, a phone issue. It's not too bad, though, um, and there's a ton of good information <laughs> in the next hour, hour, and 15 minutes. So tag along, take a listen, and uh, please let us know what you think. Thanks. We have a special guest today. Ty, are you there? I'm here, bud. All right. We have Ty Miller from Indiana, and we actually had Ty last week, too. And almost again on Sunday, been having some. Uh, well, we were. I looked at the the podcast, and we were um, two and a half minutes into the podcast when I lost power. So can't really record without power. But we're back no. now. You boys ready? Let's do it. Yeah. Just like hunting, man. Mother Nature always wins. <laughs> hunting or habitat. Yeah, you're right. Amen to that. Do you guys have your bourbon again? I remember last time you were doing some bourbon talk. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're good. Well, well, I was feeling a little under the weather, so I made a hot toddy. So I got a little bourbon and honey tea and whiskey, a little mixture. So. A little medicinal. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Trying to clear these sinuses up. That's kind of fancy for you, Jess. 
I know. My, my wife taught it to me, and so I don't. I don't feel guilty. You, you drink like four of them, you get a good little buzz, and go right to bed. So <laughs> there you go. Are you allowed to take uh, Nyquil after you drink hot toddies, or is that frowned upon? It's probably frowned upon, but might want to try it. Could be a good time. <laughs> Do not operate a tractor after doing that, <laughs> right? Or a shovel. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, Ty, like I said, thanks again for getting on, man. I'm uh, sorry for all the scheduling conflicts. Um, happy to have you. I've known you for a little while now, yet we've never met uh, in person. True. But I met you on the bowhunting.com forum. Oh, shoot, man. A while Five years ago. ago. Yeah, probably, yep. Um, and I wanted to get you on here. I wanted to hear about, uh, you know, who Ty is, how did you get started, <coughs> Um, if you want to just take it away and jump right in. Yeah, sure. Uh, for those not listening, uh, Ty Miller, obviously, Northern Indiana, born, raised, and still reside in. Uh, for those listening, if you're trying to picture where in Indiana, uh, right where Michigan and Indiana meet, right in the middle, east and west, and then go south about 30 minutes. I'm right in the heart of Notre Dame country, which you either love them or hate them, I guess, but uh, that's where I'm at. <laughs> Uh, Rudy. Talk, I was going to say, talking to, talking to two Michigan guys, probably not much love there, but... Uh, hey, I, hey, I always got a soft spot, man. I love I love the movie Rudy and Notre Dame. Is, I'll always root for them. Nice, game. nice. I, I, met Lou Holtz, <laughs> I met Lou Holtz when I was young, so I was kind of indoctrinated into it. So, um, But yeah, no, born and raised, uh, normal guy. I actually grew up on just about some uh, acreage shy of just about 10 acres my parents owned three of that being yard and a household. So there wasn't much woods, and my dad wasn't a big deer hunter. Uh, he didn't really hunt much at all except for just to put food in the freezer. So it wasn't something that, like, he was addicted to or tried to push me into. Um, I actually got my start in small game because my grandparents would offer $3 a squirrel or $4 a rabbit. So I hit the woods wow. a lot. Even, wow. in, even, in, even in deer season, it was like, that was what I was doing. I was trying to small game hunt. And I still remember my first encounter that kind of got the deer ball rolling. I was like 12 years old. I was sitting on a rock, and I had this mature doe just feed towards me through these multiflora rows. And she got within about probably a little bit longer than an arm's reach as a 12-year-old. And she literally never knew I was there. She fed right on by me, didn't pay me any mind. And, like, from that minute on, just watching her the whole time, I kind of, like, the addiction kind of started flowing and. The next year, I killed my first doe. The next year after that, I killed my first bow kill and buck kill, which was actually and still is my second biggest buck ever. So I kind of bypassed the kill a buck and get it under your, your, your belt type of thing and shot a 130-plus animal. My first year with a bow, I still know I never used my sights that day. Um, <laughs> I shot him right above uh, his back leg, clipped the artery running down his back, and he bled out 30 yards away. And I was in a climber, and I kid you not, I think I came down in one movement and uh, <laughs> ran to the house, walked in, and I literally took me about 10 minutes to let the parents know what had just happened. You know, my dad thought it was hilarious that his son was back there trying to hunt like six acres of the woods to begin with. And then lo and behold, here his son is trying to scammer through words and he finally got out that I had shot a buck, and it was bigger than anything I even thought existed at the time. And uh, we went back, and, yeah, it was a big, dark, chocolate-wrecked uh, nine-pointer, scored over 130, and I was blessed as a boy, and that's where it all started. 
the addiction from there on just grew exponentially. And I started trying to make a decision, you know, I want to make our small acres everything that it possibly can be. Um, for my area, you know, I was killing deer on that six and a half, seven acre woodlot for years that a lot of guys didn't even know existed in the area. And a lot of guys started hunting some of the smaller acres around us and they just kind of grew organically from there. Small acre hunting was born in a blog, blossomed into a website and Facebook and, uh, who knows where it's heading. I don't know, but that's kind of the gist of me and my background of where I actually came from. And I guess you could say my humble beginnings and, I definitely wasn't blessed with prime real estate, prime whitetail hunting, you know. I was on a property that most hunters would bypass right over because of the size. What a story. Wow. Yeah, you know, Ty, that's that's kind of how I got to know you was uh, from your small acre hunting Facebook page and your website. I've been following you for a few years. Yeah. So, I mean, tell the listeners, what is small acre hunting? And, I mean, you kind of dived into it, but why, why did you start it? Sure. Uh Believe it or not, it was actually started after the inspiration of somebody in my life that actually does not have any interest whatsoever in hunting. Uh, my wife <laughs> is an, my wife is an amazing person. She blesses me with extreme patience and willingness to allow me to feed this addiction of hunting. But she was a big blog follower back in like 2010. I was, you know, she's following all these blogs on. I don't know what she follows, you know, what women do. I have no idea, but she just was reading them nonstop. And I was like, man, it'd be nice if there was, like, somebody out there who just shared their experiences in the deer woods. And, like, there wasn't really many blogs back then. It's exploded now. But And she was like, well, you should start one. And so it kind of just started out organically on Blogspot. It's just a pure blog. I would write an article or share a story, you know, maybe once every other week or something like that. And it quickly just started snowballing from there. I did a couple guest posts for other people. A couple businesses had me write some food plotting articles. And next thing I know, somebody was like, you should do a website. So I started a website out of my own pockets and still pay for that out of my own pockets. But it's just grown organically. And it's been kind of humbling in the fact that I've never really tried to push it. So small acre hunting in essence is just Ty and Pops, my dad, who's involved in it big time. Um, sharing what has worked for us, what what is working, what isn't working, our successes, our failures, uh, how we attack our small acreage. Um, none of our properties except for one is bigger than 27 acres that we hunt, um, and that one is 70 with only about 27, 30 of it being wooded, so it hunts a lot smaller. Um, and small acre hunting is all about trying to maximize and teach people that, you know, you can be successful on those common pieces of ground. And, and let's be honest, a lot of times those are the pieces we can get on easier. You know, you gain a lot easier permission to gain access on a 15-acre parcel than you do a 150 prime whitetail spot. So, yeah. Yep. So, yeah, that, now, that's, now, that's what it is. Now, Ty, you said uh, your pops, your dad helps you quite a bit. And yep. you kind of said he wasn't really a big deer hunter. How did you get him involved in it? I will have to be honest, the day that we walked up on that first buck of mine, I think it spawned a huge addiction in him as well. I mean, awesome. I, I guarantee you he was smiling bigger than I was that day. And, you know, it, he just never, he wasn't raised a deer hunter. You know, he hunted yeah. specifically for putting meat in the freezer and cutting our budget. And I remember my first hunt with him when I was like nine, he shot a doe, we would spook the deer out of the bedding area and they'd run to us and he'd put them down and... It was, but it was more like a let's put meat in the freezer type of thing. But yeah. when when I shot that buck and we walked up on it, 
like something clicked in him too and he was like instantly like let's get the chainsaw out let's just start cutting trees you know we did a lot of stuff we didn't even know what we were doing at first but uh but the addiction right, grew all that well. smile on your face oh yeah most definitely most definitely <laughs> very cool there's actually a picture uh if you've followed smaller hunting long enough and i should share it again because it's an awesome photo but the swamp property is our one property that we hunt, and the first buck I shot at, like, 11 o'clock one day, and he couldn't get there for the recovery because he was working, but there's a trail camera on this micro food plot. I shot this buck in cruising for does, and we we captured on film him coming around the corner, and, like, his hands are raised, this huge smiles on his face. So I can only imagine if he was that happy about that buck after the addiction already started, how big his smile was that day we walked up on that first one. Oh, man, you're making me smile telling this story. Jeez. I, yeah, we'd love to see that picture, Ty. I mean, we'll share it, too, and, and show the listeners, you know, this uh, this excitement. We all, I mean, we all probably have that passion or, oh, or at least sure. are getting that passion, too. But it's always great to see the father-son thing. I hope to have that someday. Um, now, back to your the small acre hunting. When you mm-hmm. said the largest one was 70 acres, what about your other main properties how small are we talking because i mean if, sure. you, if you talk to like a whitetail properties guy or or any um anybody else from maybe in the midwest um you know small acreage could be 100 acres 200 acres to them yeah um to me 100 or 200 acres is like dream come <laughs> true but yeah so yeah let's dive in a little bit or talk a little bit about what is small to you um yeah so we can kind of paint a picture yeah, no, uh, just so people kind of know, that our main properties are that swamp property, which is 70, but then that's our biggest, and really, like I said, it hunts a lot smaller because a lot of it's just vacant desert ag fields, which become of no use come hunting season once harvested, so, but my personal property that I purchased in 2016 is 22.3 acres, um, which actually three of that's a pond that runs down the middle, I wish I could bury that thing, it's in the worst most operable spot, but uh, so that's 22.3. I grew up on my parents' place, which is actually under, it's sub nine acres of woods. Um, but when I say the homestead property, that's the property I'm talking about, and it actually kind of grew a little bit. I picked up a two and a half acre parcel to the northwest of theirs from somebody's, basically their backwood yard. Um, I also picked up a couple more like that. So that the homestead property is really like 13, 15, but only six of it can we actually cut trees and do food plots or anything on. Um, I've got another spot that's like 17 acres, give or take, but it's a horse pasture. Um, And then I've got like a 28-acre piece along a river bottom, uh, if you follow small acre hunting, and I I say the river bottom property, that's the one I'm talking about, and that's just north of where my parents live. But those are the those are the main ones. I've got a couple other spots that I kind of have permission to hunt, but, you know, there's seven acres here, nine acres there. I've never really went to them. I never saw anything that would trip my trigger, but who knows, someday I might be slapping a tree stand up on one of them, too, if something does. Okay. Well, perfect. I think uh, I think you're going to relate to a lot of our listeners um, just by those property sizes. I know I own 15. I know Jesse owns 15 up north. Um I hunt, well, it was a five-acre piece I just lost. Um, I mean, we're we're in the same boat, just getting in people's backyards, yeah. if you will, sometimes. I mean, whatever it takes, um, it could butt up to a big wood lot. I mean, some of the stuff I look for. What do you focus yeah. on 
on the smaller properties, you know, what are the advantages and disadvantages, or um, why do you like the smaller properties so much? I know they're easier to get on of course, but still. Wait, yeah, I'm out. I got I to gotta butt in real quick. Sorry, Tom. Go ahead. Jared, you lost the five-acre with the crazy guy on it who always comes out, like, half-naked after we're done hunting? Yeah, um, they had to sell the house. <laughs> oh, bummer. Okay, sorry. That, that guy had a beer in his hand no matter what time I would get there. It could be 9 a.m. on a Tuesday, <laughs> and he would have a, a beer in his hand, a cigarette in the other, and I'm not going out in those woods. Have at it. I'm like, all right, thanks, you know. And, <laughs> He's a nice yeah, guy, but uh, he said they fell on hard times and had to sell the the property. So I need to go over there and make friends with the new guy. Um, hopefully, it's not a hunter. <laughs> so we'll see. But yeah, I mean, some of the main things that I focus on when I'm trying to find small acre properties, I don't worry about more or less is there food on it. That's like the last thing I consider. I want to know is there bedding on it or is there bedding really close by and this is going to be traffic corridor. Um, the smaller properties are really hard to get on and off if the deer are there, you know, the whole time, if you will, when you go in in the morning or if they're there at 3 p.m. Um, I like a travel corridor. Actually, the best property, best parcel out of any parcel I have, I, I always tell Pops, the best stand we have actually sits on a parcel that none of us own, northwest of my, or northeast of the homestead, in between the river bottom and it, and it's literally two and a half acres behind their barn, my tree stand, I can shoot a 30-yard shot to their barn. And it's at the base of this hill. And if you zoom out, not only topography because of the hillside, but roadways and houses and open fields, this is the only corridor that is wooded for miles that connects Ah. everything to the east and everything to the west. Bingo. So... One of the things that I look at when I'm really trying to find a small acre property and I'm giving away a secret, I guess you will, is GIS maps, satellite imagery is your best friend. Um, You know, zoom out. Don't zoom in right away. Zoom out to where you can see expanse of 10, 20 miles and just look and see if you see any of those tight pinch points that there's nothing else around and then zoom in and see if it's a place that you can attack. Um, that I, if I lose that property, it will break my heart because I, it literally is the best travel corridor we have, and you can set in that stand all day long. And you got to get there early because the deer will bed really close uh, to the houses there. But I mean, you can set all day, and you could have a buck walk by from sunrise to sunset. It's crazy. Wow! Wow! I'm actually, um, yeah, you just taught me something there. I use GIS maps like. They're nobody's business, but I've never zoomed all the way out like that. That's uh, that's a great tip. I mean, um, you really begin to see, you know, let the let the topography and the wood show you those pinch points that, you know, when we zoom in, we really we notice the smaller pinch points. But this is kind of what I like to say a macro pinch point, mm-hmm. where where you literally, oh my gosh, this whole chunk of timber over here north of the city connects to this one to the west by this little point. Well, and we know deer will cruise, you know, they'll, they'll yeah. go miles during the rut. So if that's the only spot that's covered, that's where they're going to be most likely. I mean, yeah, they'll walk out in the open. They turn, when they when those boys get dumb in the rut, they'll go anywhere. They'll cross a road and stand in front of a bus for all they care. But for the most part, the smart ones are still going to be smart. So, You know, and that, that makes a lot of sense. I used to own eight acres here in Brighton, and my... Literally, only four acres was huntable, 
but the four acres was a pinch point that butted up to the highway. Yep. And, I mean, these deer just funneled right in this little pinch point, and it was, it was literally like an hourglass. So I was yep. hunting the hourglass right in the middle, and during the rut, I mean, I would have tons of scrub bucks during October, early November. Then all of a sudden during the rut, there'd be 130, 140-inch deer show up. Of course, it was always at nighttime, but, you know, it's just those funnels, those, those pitch yep. points, I think, are key. If they're thick and there's cover in them, it's even better, of course. Yep. So. Okay, now, on these smaller properties, um, what kind of bucks are you killing on these? Let's, uh... Let's just get out there and ask you. I mean, let's. Yeah. What What are you killing? What are you seeing? Um, does Indiana have a one buck rule? Yes, they went That's to a awesome. one. I I hunted a year or two of my life where there was a two buck rule. Um, oh, they used to have two. Okay. Yeah, yeah, we did a long time ago. Um, I, I there's part of me that wishes we would go back to that selfishly when I kill one on October first. It's like, right. yeah. <laughs> but true. it's. It's done amazing things for our, our, our age demographic of bucks. It has protected some of the younger ones. Um, I would say it's had an adverse effect on the doe population in some areas. Some guys now are just killing more does than they were prior, whether they should or not, but that's a whole other topic. Um, but the quality of bucks that I'm killing, uh, I've killed three that check in over 130, so I've got three Copeland Youngs, uh, all but I'm trying to run through my head. All of those coming off of the homestead property, actually. So the smallest of all the properties, really. Wow. Um, I've killed, yeah. I want to say, six between 120 and 130. That kind of, It's kind of my groove spot. Nice. Um, I've killed one that was sub-110, a little eight-pointer that I still... Uh, well, he was probably around 100, actually. I'm being gracious at 110, but that was my second buck I ever killed, and he licked my tree step, and I told Daddy he was going to die, so... <laughs> I was still pretty young, but we we used to have a rule hunting the homestead property. Even you know, some guys are probably like, "Well, you just lucked into that big boy your first year." Well, I did actually. We had a rule that it had to be eight points or as wide as your the ears of the deer, which we've kind of come off now. Um, for anybody that's followed smaller hunting, I killed Junior, which is actually the son of a big buck that I chased for three years and ate many tag soup over. He's hanging over my head right now above me as I speak, but Junior is just a huge, massive seven-pointer. Um, so he wouldn't right. even have been legal to kill back then, but, you know, now we gear everything more towards age. Age towards the points, yeah. Yeah, and I will. I'm lenient with that, you know. Like, if a two-and-a-half-year-old is the biggest deer on my property, I'm I'm honest. I'm going to have a hard time passing him if he walks by. I just hope he doesn't. Right. So. <laughs> there's, no, there's nothing wrong with that, man. There's, oh, yeah. Whatever gets your heart, whatever gets your heart pumping, man. I I say let the arrow fly. Yep, I'm 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 a firm believer in you know, well my first deer I shot on my my property that I bought in 2016. I bought it in March and shot splits as a buck that I shot there. Um, that's that G two. That's that G two buck. Yes, split yes. Two. Both G twos are split. Awesome buck. I yeah. really. I'm looking at them right now. Yep, he was the number three buck out there, and, you know, any other year, I may not have shot him, but it was my first buck kill on that property. When he walked up, I grabbed the air, I grabbed the bow, and it was like it's on. So, you know, I don't question my gut. If my gut tells me to shoot, I go. And, you know, I tell people all the time, if that's a 100-inch deer, if that's a 50-inch deer, if that's a spike, if it gets your blood pumping and, and you're going to be proud of it, man, brag till you can't brag no more about it because that's yeah. what hunting's all about. 
Heck yeah. Those are some respectable bucks there, sir. I'm not going to lie. Nice job. Oh, yeah. So, Ty, you know, I've been following your website, following what you do. I mean, what would, like, when you get on these properties, what's, like, the first habitat thing you would focus on? And I think I know the answer to it, but I want to want to see what you say. So are we talking not just small acre, but we're talking about a property that I can actually manipulate the habitat? Yeah, yeah. Any any property okay. where you got permission to cut trees, put food plots? Sure. I mean, what, what's your first go-to? Security cover. If the deer don't feel okay. safe, yeah. If the deer don't feel safe, it ain't gonna do nothing for me. Um, yeah. You gotta you gotta make those deer feel safe. There's a there's a short film, a white film minute short film that I posted a while back that has gotten huge. Uh, it's got a very warm welcoming. I don't know how many times that thing's up to share, but you know it talks about how everybody goes to food, and then it's usually water or uh, I'm completely blanking right. Oh, bedding, obviously. Um, but you can even have really good bedding and it not be safe property. Um, you could have the best bedding in the world, but if your entrance and exits are going too close to it, that bedding is not going to feel safe to those deer. It could be the best. I mean, you could have a thick stand of five five, uh, five acres of solid switchgrass, and they don't want to bed in it because you're walking right beside it and blowing towards it. You know, maybe you're walking right beside it's fine, but not with the winds that you're doing it on. So yeah. you got you got if they don't feel safe, you could have the best designed property from anybody out there. You could have Jeff Sturgis come design it, Jake Ellinger come design it, all those guys that I respect to the moon. But it doesn't matter. If they don't feel safe, it isn't going to mean a hill of beans. Okay, Ty. Uh, well, first of all, Jeff, is that what you thought he was going to say? I thought he was going to say bedding, but, I mean, that, that kind of correlates with both. Cause yeah, I mean, it does. To have good, yeah. To have good bedding, you got to have good security. So exactly. we'll, we'll jump in the bedding yep. in a sec. And yep, cover and bedding, you know, and then obviously if you have it and you hunt the property right, you're going to have safety. Okay, so yeah. while we're on that quick, um, maybe for the listeners who might not know, what is security cover? What do you mean exactly? Um, I mean, I can think thick brush, that's cover, but specifically what do you like to see when you get to a property? Oh, that's awesome, security cover, or I know you mentioned sure. some of the other things that aren't so good. Yeah, I, I grew up hunting a lot of flat topography, so I I just go bonkers over when I get some topography on a property, which is hard to come around my area, a lot of stuff flat. So, I mean, because bucks love to bed on the southern-facing hillsides where they can sun themselves and look down over stuff. Um, I mean, that, that even plays out over scrapes. Oftentimes, a buck will like a J-hook and come down if there's topography towards that scrape. Um, it's just another way for them to use their vision. It's, you know, their vision's amazing, but on flat ground, it's it's less. Uh, it has less of an impact. You know, if they're elevated, they can look over everything, and then it's not just their nose that's deadly and going to pick you off. It's going to be their eyesight as well. Um, now, granted, if you have really thick cover, some of the first things I'm going to look for is obviously understory. Uh, I despise an open open understory woods. Uh, I have literally gained access to properties that are like, you know, 10, 20, 30 acres, and they're nothing but solid, fully mature woods that you could, like, drive your F-150 with a trailer hooked up through. Oh, jeez, yeah. Park effect. Exactly. It's the park effect, you know, and and they look great. People love, some families just love having clean woods, 
if you're a deer hunter and you want your property to be successful, that should be the last thing you want your property to look like. Um, you know, my, my, my mom always complains to pops because their woods look like, it just looks like an absolute mess and she hates it. <laughs> and you know, when you're on a small acre property, you're driving down the driveway and we've hinge cut right by the driveway. <laughs> so, you know, she's driving by it every day because we try to get those deer to bed as close to, you know, you got to maximize every square inch basically when you're talking micro properties like this. So. Uh, you know, I want thick understory. If I don't have thick understory, I'm going to create it. I'm going to start hinging. Uh, first question is, is there loggable trees? If I can get those out and make some money, let's do it. If not, we're going to start hinging. Okay. So, now back to the bedding. I mean, yeah. what are you doing to manipulate these beds? Are you are you planting certain stuff to create bedding, or are you sculpting or making them, or sure. what are you doing to these bedding areas? Yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of initially because we didn't deal with a lot of properties that were open. I was blessed that my twenty two point three acres actually has a seven acre fallow area, and then that has been fallow for about five years, and another about nine year fallow section. And uh, you know those those areas are, have naturally become what I like to call it's Mother Nature designs a bedding area better than any of us. That early successional growth where you've got everything from briars to native grasses to, you know, young oak trees to cedar trees popping up, just that thick jungle mess that literally can feed the deer but also give them cover and site blocking and, and bedding. Um, but uh, but we actually have manipulated a lot of our bedding areas out of hinging because we were dealing with woods. The homestead property was nothing but mature woods. You could literally set on one side of the property – and see the whole way through it. And now if you go hunt there and you're not setting on the edge of the food plot, you're going to be hard-pressed to shove an arrow longer than 30 to 35 yards because there's just so much cover. Um, okay. So we design it, and, and the homestead property taught us a lesson. We kind of got overzealous at first, and we did a lot of clear-cutting. We didn't, we didn't quite have the hinging down right at first, so it took us a while, and then, the one thing I, I, I stress to people is, you know, if you've got a thick bedding area, you've got to go in and sculpt it. you got to work it. A lot of guys, you know, they have this sanctuary, like holier-than-thou type of approach to a bedding area. Well, the problem is a bedding area can get too thick, and then the deer can't use it. So I will literally go in there, and I just did this at the, at the new 22 is what I call it, my property. I actually went back and revisited the bedding area once. I do this once a year, and I will spend a day with a chainsaw, and I will literally cut out about shoulder-high trails and just that weave everywhere, and then I will literally sit there and I will carve out little bedding areas, little rooms, if you will. You know, I like to describe this just like rooms. Try to try to design an area that, like, two or three of you could could lay down, maybe one here. Um, if you're looking to get does to bed, you're going to make them a little bit bigger and make multiples closer together. If you want a buck to bed, you're going to design it a lot smaller because, you know, you don't want one to your bedding there. Um, and the crazy thing is, uh, you'll have to, all the listeners and you guys will have to check out the next, uh, video. Well, actually it'll be two videos from now of the embrace the journey, which we'll talk about later, which is basically my 2018 season. I actually in going into that bedding area, found a bed, actually found three, but one lone bed in this spot that I was hoping a buck would bed. And I mean, literally there's hair everywhere and there's not a leaf there. He literally has cleared the entire area out and it's on a little knoll between the bedding area and the pond is like 10 yards away. 
And it, it literally was the only spot in this whole bedding area that the topography went up a little bit, and I was like, i got to put a bed there. I know a deer is going to want a bed there. And just like that, I couldn't believe it. I hadn't went in there in over a year, and I went back there looking and hoping and literally, literally looked like something had just laid there. It was crazy. Huh. You literally no. made a buck bed. I, I never thought I'd be it. able to actually say. I, I Yeah, I, I never actually thought I would be able to say that. But, yes, I designed a bed, and it has to be a buck or else it has to be a doe running by itself because there's no other beds around it. Wow. And this thing was, and this thing was used repetitively. I mean, there was there was no leaves, and there was just hair everywhere. Um, so it was it was awesome, and I took some pictures and video right by it, and uh, you you'll see that on a video probably that'll be posted to Facebook, YouTube, and the website soon. Okay. Um, and when you mean, I have a couple questions on your comment there. When you say sculpting and you're cutting these trails. How yeah. wide are these trails? Um, th- the reason I ask is my woods was logged before it was sold to me. Uh, the yeah. guy took all the value out of there, mo- most of the value. Now there's just treetops everywhere. And I went through and just made little maze and pocket meandering trails left, right, forwards, mm-hmm. backwards, wherever you can. Um, I'm not sure if I made them wide enough. How wide are you going? Sure. And then... Um, Secondly, if you were to look down from an aerial map on your property, what sort of shape would these little rooms look like? What sort of design would we kind of picture there? Well, that's a good question. Um, to be honest with you, most of them you're probably not going to be able to see um, because they're either tucked up under or beside. Um, I, unfortunately, on the new 22, have a lot of multiflora rows. Uh, or not multiflora rose, sorry, uh, bush honeysuckle, which I'm eventually going to be eradicating. But the one thing that they do, they you know, they create a really thick canopy and they will kill everything underneath it. So I've been thinning those out, but there's still a canopy overhead. And even when I hinge cut a bedding area, typically around the bed, I like to have, you know, shoulder high hinge cuts to kind of almost give them like a roof effect, but I don't like to box them into where they feel like they're a, uh, you know, going to the slaughterhouse or anything. Right. Um, and that's the one thing that I think, I guess, a lot of people kind of by accident do. They try to carve out these trails with hinge cutting, and they actually make them too tight and too narrow to where that deer feels like they're basically in a cattle chute, if you will. Um, I use hinge cutting to just to steer bedding areas, to steer trails. But my trail that goes through my bedding area, I would say, is just wide enough to fit a riding lawnmower through. Okay. Um, and that's one trail. And I, 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 just, I put that trail in specifically to try to encourage the brunt of the movement through that bedding area. Okay. You know, I, I, wanted, I wanted to have kind of a southeast to a northwest traveling through there. So I, I, I cut that main trail at a diagonal, if you will. And it actually tops out in two spots right into my clover chicory, which is 45 yards from my tree stand. You know, coincidence. Okay. And then when you're in the bedding area, off of that trail, there are just tons of only, you know, shoulder-width-apart trails that wind that a human being can weave their way through. And if a human being can weave that trail, a deer can easily weave that trail. Um, I like to try to have cover cleared in those trails, you know, to where my shoulders are just brushing it, and I like to have things cleared at least shoulder high. You know, I'm about 5'11", 6 foot, and if I can have stuff cleared at my armpit level, typically a deer is going to be able to walk through there without a problem. 
Um, obviously, I hope to someday get a booner on camera to where I have to go in and make these trails much bigger. But yeah. <laughs> until that happens, I'll stick with this. I think you painted a good now, picture there. Nice. Now, with these trails and bedding areas, are you using any uh, herbicide treatment or anything to keep the weeds down or on the ground um, or anything? I, yes, I have. Uh, I've actually, at the Homestead property, when I'm doing a lot of uh, hinge cutting type stuff, I've actually either spread, uh, I get a lot of free white pine needles from the neighbor. Yeah, yeah. She, she loves it when I come over and like, hey, can I take all these pine needles? And she's like, yeah, I don't want to do that. That's that's landscaping work. So I would literally, I filled up a couple bags and like I'll dump those on the beds because, you know. Now, granted, every deer is a little different, but if you can give them, I like to tell people at least clear the bed out that you want them to, to utilize. Um, you know, if you've got little brambles and, and, and woody brows popping up, you know, clip those off below the dirt surface. Otherwise, those are just like pencils that you're laying on as a human being. You know, think of it when you're laying down in bed, and if you're, like, on the remote, you know instantly. Or even, like, yeah, true. You, could, you could feel a marble underneath your back on the bed. So, yep. you know, try to, you know, I'll rake them. If I, if I don't have pine needles, I'll use uh, leaves sometimes, or I'll just leave them raked clean um, just to make sure there's a nice, smooth place for them to play, basically. Okay. Yeah, I wonder. I will, I will use herbicide. I'll use ground clears. Like, like obviously, I'm not going to use a uh, selected herbicide. I mean, I want to kill everything in the actual bed, so I'll, I'll typically burn it with clay. Ty, can you hear us? All right, getting a little bit of static. Uh, I can hear you. Yeah. There you go. That sounds. Oh, better. there we go. Yeah, you were breaking up a little bit there. So, anyways, let's keep moving. Go ahead. Uh, I was going to say yeah. maybe just get some straw and lay some straw down in there, right? Yep, straw work. Yeah. Yep, straw will work great. I, I've heard guys using it. I I just never uh, never really seen it, but it, I mean it makes sense. Yeah, it, anything to suppress the weed growth basically is what you're doing there. Okay. And yeah. and and in the beds, uh, the one thing that you know, and and guys like you know, I don't know if you guys know Bill Vale or Jake Jake Ellinger does this as well. Um, yep. You know, put a put a put a backrest down. And give them a couple options. Uh, you know, I will literally cut, not saplings, but, you know, picture, like, hamstring, upper leg size logs. Whenever I hinge a tree and it dies, I will literally cut, like, two and three foot sections and just save those for backrests and beds. Because deer love to bed up against a backrest, whether that be the bottom of a bush, a multi, uh, a bush honeysuckle bush, a, I don't know, a Russian olive, a, a cedar tree, um, but I found I haven't really found that deer bed underneath the cedar trees as much, except for in the winter time when it gets really bitter cold. But yeah, that's yeah, yep, a backrest, and that can be just a topography. You know, a little dirt mound in there, deer will bed against it. Well, now you know I, I I've been reading on your site. You mentioned slip trails when you're talking about bedding. Can you kind of dive into yeah. that and explain what that is? Yeah, slip trails. Uh, anytime. Thing, and this goes back to making sure the deer feels safe. Anytime I design one of those little rooms or a bed, you know, for lack of a better term, I use the word room because I want people to think that it's, you know, a little bit bigger than just like one two-foot by three-foot section. But basically, I want that deer to be able to get up and vacate the area safely in multiple directions. And these slip trails, again, they don't have to be very big. 
it just got to be big enough for that deer to use to escape. I want them to be able to slip out of their bedding area, you know, and, and, and if, if you read on my site or you watch some of my videos, you'll, I should actually record myself doing this sometime, but if I'm going to be coming into the property and it's not hunting season, I'm literally whistling, clapping, not being obnoxious, but I want the deer to know that I'm coming. I want them to be able to use their slip escape trail, whichever direction that is. You know, if I'm coming from the north, I want them to be able to vacate south and feel safe because that tells them that that bed is successful. That bed is doing exactly what they want it to do. They want it to alert them of danger. They want to be able to escape danger, and they lived because that's all they want to do. You know, they want to survive. Because if they never thought about it that way, if, if they yeah, mess yeah. up just if they mess up just one time, yeah, it's it's over. We can mess up multiple times, but if they mess up one time, it's over. So teaching them that that bed is working reinforces that. Wow, interesting Great point. Huh. Oh, I like that. I mean, it kind of, you know, it comes back to, you know, push when you enter a field, go out with your truck first or your four-wheeler, you know, it's, you kind of let them know you're, they're there and let them get out safely. And, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and, I mean, I try to minimize my visits. And when I go to a property to do habitat work, I try to work from, like, the moment I'm there until an hour or two before dark. Like, you know, I'm yep. not going to go out there for an hour or two and then leave and then, come back the next day or, then, or you know, do that five weekends in a row. I try to minimize it, especially on a small acre setting. You know, you can really blow. That's one of the disadvantages to small acre. You can blow up a property much quicker than you can if you're hunting 100 acres. But the good thing is you can get all the work done a lot quicker. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> so now on these properties, I mean, you, you really talk about the thickness and the cover. Now, can these small acre properties, you know, 10, 15, 20, 40 acre parcel, is there anything, like, can they be too thick? I mean, can you have too thick of a property in your eyes? Yes. Um, we actually saw that on the Homestead property for a while. Uh, when we went in there, we just got over-aggressive and kind of, and it wasn't really necessarily over-aggressive. We got, we just weren't strategic about it. We didn't know better back then. And we just knew we had to get thick, and we had to get it thick fast. And uh, okay. it actually got so thick and so overgrown that, you know, a human being had to fight to get through it, which meant the deer okay. just – the deer were using the edges. And it was amazing when we went in there and started opening up those arteries. Um, you know, if we weren't going to hunt an area – I wanted arteries and bedding areas, pockets, just all throughout it, and the use just exploded. And, you know, while it was thickening up, those first three, four years before it got too thick, oh, my gosh, the use was just insane. They had never experienced that much herbaceous vegetation. They were feeding on everything that was popping up. We had, you know, two or three doe groups that seemed to be fighting over my parents' homestead property because it was just wow. the thickest and luscious understory around. And then you just slowly saw this decline, and it was like, man, we're just not seeing the deer. Well, it's because when you start walking around, and that's another thing. If we had actually known to go there and, like, once a year at least, check our bedding areas, make sure they're not too thick, we could have rectified that situation much sooner. Now, are you – are you? About, like you already mentioned, check your bedding areas, right? Sculpt them and make sure they don't get too thick. That's a good lesson. Sorry, Jess, go that's ahead. Not, 
Yeah, especially, sorry, not to interrupt, but just for your listeners, just especially if it's a hinge cut, um, woody type bedding area. You know, obviously if you have switchgrass or it's more of a, a basis like that of bedding, you're not going to have to check on those nearly as much because there's not much you can do. Yeah. Well, now, when you get a property like that, like, kind of gets too overgrown, are you going in there with, like, a walk-behind brush hog or just going in there with chainsaws, or what are you using to chop that stuff down? If it's small enough and I can, I'm going to use our, our tractor and our brush hog. However, for, okay. the first, for the first, like, 10 years of Small Acres' existence, the biggest power tool we had was, like, a weed eater, a handsaw, a chainsaw, and a rear-time tiller. So... I can still remember putting in over five acres of food plots with a rear time tiller. It <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but nowadays, you know, yeah, I mean, even if I have to, I'm going to rent a bobcat or, you know, try to find a local farmer who has, you know, maybe a small dozer or uh, something or, you know, a tracked bobcat that can go in there with its blade and push over saplings and brush. And, you know, sometimes all you need to do is clear out an acre at a time disturb that soil and let mother nature do the rest. We've all seen yeah. how we've all seen those vacated ag fields that in literally a year, sometimes two years, the deer just are all over it because of all that, you know, uh, early successional growth is great for food, it's great for fawning, and then as you start getting some cover growing in there, it, it just turns into a bedding mecca. Yeah, one of the guys on the habitat site on Facebook did like a three-year time lapse. I think it was like a 50-acre field. Mm-hmm. They just let go natural, and it was amazing what happened. Yeah, I mean it's just it, and nasty, and it was real cool. There is a for all your listeners and you guys as well. Craig Harper, which I can't stress enough. Craig Harper, he's a biologist. He does a lot of work for QDMA. I forget what university he's with, but I mean his book is like my gospel. And he did a seminar. I know QDMA has it on their Facebook page, a video, where he actually touches on a, a now a hunting operation where they converted a ton of their food plots and their food, their agricultural production, and just let it go fallow. And it was okay. incredible what that property started producing, buckwise. Um wow. Craig Harper is huge on trying to teach people, as I am, but he does it in a much more scientific way. You know, I just say weeds are not bad. He actually <laughs> explains he explains the crude protein levels and everything. You know, it, weeds are not bad. You, honestly, the best poor man food plot is disturb the soil and get weeds to grow. Oh, it's true. It's true. I mean, you, you see the – I mean, God, there, there's so much greenery that they'll eat. It's unbelievable. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, it kind of actually leads me to my next question. Um, you know, if you watch a deer in a food plot, a lot of the times they'll walk right along the edge, have a, you know, have some of the food plot you planted, then also mm-hmm. browse on the on the forbs or the uh, successional growth. I, I, wa- I have a couple things here I kind of want to get into. Um, successional growth. I know I've heard of Craig Harper. I've heard him on a couple other podcasts. I'm going to find that video and watch it. That sounds amazing. Um, when, now, when you talk successional growth, what does that mean? Um, I've also heard the term Forbes. Is that the same thing? Um, you call them weeds as well, I believe. Can you kind of explain that? 
Yeah, I mean, early successional growth is what happens in Mother Nature after a fire or disturbance or anything that triggers Mother Nature to regrow in a section. That's going to be anything from woody brows, uh, you know, your young saplings. But typically your first things that are going to pop up are all your native grasses, which some are good, some are bad, um, and a lot of weeds, things like pokeweed, things like, uh, which I encourage all your, your listeners to check out, you know, some of these terms. Pokeweed is a pretty, uh, if you live in our area in the Midwest, you've seen pokeweed along uh, areas of, of, of uh, large agricultural fields or areas where they tilled but they weren't able to actually get crop in for, you know, I don't know, high water table or issues with the planter or things like that. Pokeweed pops up quite often. It's a very highly uh, desirable browse of the deer. Um, things like that will just pop up. That's your early successional growth. Ragweed. Um, unfortunately, you're going to have things like timothy grass, uh trying to think of some of the other grasses that you want to eradicate with selective herbicides, but that's early successional growth. That's the stuff that anything, you know, and all this stuff grows, you know, no, no higher than the deer's reach. So, I mean, they just absolutely love this stuff. Okay. No, that's, that's a perfect explanation. Um, I also saw on your website you have, or maybe it was in that Embrace the Harvest. Is that, did I say that right, Embrace the Harvest? Embrace the journey. Embrace the journey. Sorry. Yeah, I watched that first video too. That was great. Um, I'm not sure where I saw it. You had a a little part where you mentioned habitat is greater than food, which is greater than plot. Yeah. So you got like habitat um, over food over a plot. What does that mean exactly? Yeah, I mean it basically comes down to, and it's actually more of a streamlined thought where too many people, when they think habitat, think food, and then they just automatically go to plot yeah, like that's okay, the yeah. yeah like that's the only way to deliver food to the deer um you know hinging a lot of people think i do hinging just to thicken up the property and make it safer well in, in in all reality hinging is a huge way to provide food in both a direct and indirect way you're removing sunlight sucking up canopy so now everything that's around where that tree used to exist is now going to get that light and be able to grow so the the buds and the fresh tips of those trees, which I, in the in the coming videos of Embrace the Journey, I actually have a video where I show you the tips of all these trees that I hinged in like March, and three weeks later, every single tip is bit off. Like these deer are just pounding it. In the winter, when food sources are low, they love woody browse, and that's one of the big food sources. So I'm providing food directly with the tree that I actually hinge over, but I'm also providing indirect food with just everything else, all that early successional growth that's going to happen. You know, all the, the weeds around it, the grasses around it, more saplings that pop up and deer eat, um, all those things. So, like, I try to get people to get out of this mindset. They think a food plot is like this magic bean, if you will, that, like, if you have a food plot, you're doing habitat. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Um is that kind of the same thing as restructuring your property without planting a seed, if you will? I saw that quote uh, as well. Or did yeah, you mean no, something I, different there? Yeah, no, you can you can provide year-round food without ever having to buy a seed from the ag store or from, you know, a seed company. Not, not a just, lot of people say that. That's interesting. I like that. Well, I'm, I, I'm connected with a seed company that I love and adore and respect, but... 
I'm not sponsored by them. So, like, I think that's one of the things why you don't see it or hear that a lot from a lot of people. You know, you can, you can accomplish a lot of food. You can accomplish your round food without ever buying a seed. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, that's – it's just Mother Nature, and that's, it's God's creation right there, you know. I mean, yep. there's – deer live every day without us helping them live, you know. You just got to get it in their reach, you know. If it's not in their reach – they can't eat it, obviously. I know that sounds really stupid and really, you know, like, but that's true. You know, if everything's above their reach or nothing's growing out of the ground, they're not going to, they don't have anything to eat. But, of course, you're going to go to a food plot if you don't believe in doing anything else. No, that makes perfect sense. I mean, back to your park effect type woods that some people love to see. I mean, all that woody browse is you know, 30, 40, 50 feet in the air, and they can't get it. So uh, mm-hmm. it may seem obvious to some, but then again, you go to a lot of people's woods, and they're wide open. So maybe, Yeah, you're, you're, you, know. you're, you are hunting a deer desert in that case. Yeah, then, then you're counting on acorns or different kind of nuts, you know. Yeah. yeah, and typically if you're hunting a large oak flat, I mean, unless your deer feels safe and they're not pressured really high, which my deer are neither, they're pressured and they don't feel safe in a lot of places that are open like that. But you can't expect a deer to feed into a 10-acre mature oak flat that's wide open right? in killable time. It's just not going to happen. So good on you. You have acorns, but they're not huntable, really. So. And while we're on oaks, um, a lot of people kind of – you know, worship oaks. I I love seeing a, a nice white oak. Um, yes. What I mean, they provide mass. I mean, it's it's they're they're great, beautiful trees. A lot of times you can get a good stand in them, and you have a lot of cover because they hold their leaves so long. Um, yes. Would you ever hinge cut one? Not only would I, I have hinge cut probably over a hundred. Really? Oh yeah. You, you dirty dog. I know, right? There's going to be a lot of eye rolls, and there's a lot of people rolling over in their graves right now probably about that. But, um, well, yeah, let's explain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oftentimes, you know, the obvious case is this. You walk into a grove of oak, of oak, oak trees, and I may have 10 or 15 of them competing for the same canopy in a section of only 30 by 40 yards. I'm going to hinge cut some of those. I'm going to get them down and growing because deer love fresh oak shoots. And I'm going to release the canopy for the remaining few that I want to just just explode in mature growth. And then down the road, they're going to be my nut producers. But they're going to be thin enough to where I still have sunlight getting to the ground. It's thick underneath them. I don't need to find the acorns, but the deer will. You know, they can smell them. I don't need to be able to just see them laying there. So, you know, if I take a growth with 15... You know, maybe seven to fifteen-year-old oak trees, and I turned it into just four or five. I guarantee you, those four or five, by releasing the canopy for them, they're going to outproduce the fifteen that were there previously. Good point. I like yeah, it. That makes sense. I like it. So, not only are you cutting these beautiful trees down, you're helping the remaining trees by releasing them uh, to become even better trees. For sure, and you know, my fallow fields are a great example. I have oak trees popping up in it, and unless I have two competing, I'm leaving the oak trees, let's be honest, because even if they're the only trees that exist inside this sculpted bedding area or maybe on the edge of a food plot for me, 
they're not going to steal a ton of sunlight because as the sun progresses throughout the day, that one tree is not going to make the difference in the entire area around it. Right. Now, if I had 20 or 30, I'm going to start killing a lot of the understory around it. But a couple here, a couple there. I mean, you're talking about I could eventually in 10, 15 years have a bedding area with acorn trees in it. I mean, if you're a buck, would you not want a bed where you can eat right there? Uh, it'd be the best yeah. bedding, yeah. I mean, exactly. No, it, it, kind it of off top, so kind of off topic. Do you have that oak wilt disease down by you? Yes, and that's 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 my only caveat to cutting oak trees. There is a time period. A lot of people say it's April to July. Excuse me. Um, that you need to be just cautious of cutting. And I really, I only will hinge oaks really in the fall but I rarely hinge in the fall because I'm usually hunting. But in the winter, December to March, you know, if it's freezing temperatures, I don't hesitate at all to hinge them. Yeah, because we're, we're starting to see that a lot up north in northern Michigan by me. It's uh, spreading like wildflower, and I'm, I'm getting nervous because we have tons of oaks on our property. And that's the scary thing. It can literally just wipe them out. It's not the one that you cut you have to worry about, if I understand the disease correctly. It's, yeah, I think you're it, right. Yeah, it can literally take out the near nearby trees. Oh, yep. Are you really seeing that up north, Jess? Yeah, they're seeing it, I mean, a couple miles from us already. Wow, I didn't know that. And they yeah. say it can be caused from just pruning. Wow. Like, like yeah, I'm, I'm, I actually pulled up an article right now that I'm reading, and, yeah, I mean, there's some people that claim that just pruning a – so, like, if you're hanging a tree stand in the dead of summer in July – and you're trimming branches, you could potentially – now, it doesn't always cause it. They stress that, but it can actually cause, just from pruning, the same disease to spread. Hmm. Huh. Very interesting. I know uh, it's actually been a topic on a few habitat um, groups lately, and some guys blow it off because it's not in the area, and some guys – and it, our, our DNR even recommends not to do it from – like similar to that time frame you mentioned, so yep, I'll have to uh, dig into that. Um, moving, I on. would encourage caution. I would encourage caution. Okay, yeah, great, great. Uh, moving on, you mentioned in the Embrace the Journey video, I believe, a pear tree project, something with pear trees. What do you got going on? I have some disappointing news. I, I kind of missed the window, but the pear tree project is one which uh, hopefully next I, I, I will be doing it next year. But I inherited, as many people do, a ton of those flowering, blooming pear trees on my property. They uh -huh. don't produce they don't produce fruit bigger than like a marble, if they produce any. Um, I have one or two that produce a little bit bigger. But I've actually read and have a bunch of habitat friends that have actually converted those. You know, they're wild Bradford, Cleveland pears, if I understand it correctly. Um, yeah. They'll actually cut them, graft them over to kefir. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think. Moonglow. Uh, there's one other. Oh, Anju. I have an Anju and a kefir on my property right now that I planted. But you can actually graft these non-desirable pear trees over to regular pear trees, just similar how you can graft an apple tree. And if they take, then you have a mass-producing pear tree, whereas in before you just had one that flowered and looked awesome, but 
did you no good unless it was hinged over and the deer were eating it. So. Wow. So you're literally making it a mass-producing tree yep. for the deer. That's awesome. Yep. And the deer annihilate those things if you hinge them. And they, wow. they, are, very, they are very hardy trees. I hinged uh, 12 of them just last week on my property, and I videoed one that is now two years old, and I mean the horizontal or the vertical growth growing off of this horizontal tree is insane, where the deer can't reach it. Where the deer can reach it, nothing is growing. The deer eat it every single year. Every single sucker that comes off the stump is gone, or less than an inch or two. Um, Wow. But, yeah, so if you have them and you don't want to get into grafting, hinge those puppies over because they are a great food source, and they literally will... They can put up with browse pressure almost to the point where I would say they're one of the better hinging trees that I've ever hinged as far as being able to just continue to thrive upon even if they're getting browsed on. And what was the name of that, that pear tree again? What was the name? I'm not a forester by, <laughs> by nature, but I've been told they're either blooming uh, Bradford pears or they're Cleveland pears, um, both of which seem to be the the – the, the pair of choice when I okay. send it out to all my habitat friends and forester friends. Those are the two that they keep going back to. Awesome. Hey, Jared, you have you have two Cleveland pears in your front yard that I planted. Oh, those are Cleveland pears? Yeah, yeah. Do they produce the tiny little fruit? Yeah, actually they do. Yep. Um, and they're yep. flowering right now. They're gorgeous. But, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm trying to think if I have any of those on my hunting property. I I can't say I do, um, and I've I've looked. Um, okay, well, thanks, Jess. <laughs> How long did you plant? <laughs> so I I bought my house from a fr- a mutual friend of Jesse and mine. So apparently you did what landscaping here a decade ago or what? Oh yeah, it's probably what six years ago. I mean those those trees are probably six footers when I planted them. Oh, okay, nice. Yeah, they're and now I, I know that know that one's probably a fifteen footer at least. They they grow really fast. I mean, they they got a really good growth rate. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yep. Awesome. So now, Ty, we keep uh, talking about the embrace the journey series. Can you kind of explain what that is and what you're doing with it? What your what's your goals? I mean, what's the end game with this? Uh, Embrace the Journey, more or less, I mean, it, I guess it kind of got built up bigger than it really is, but Embrace the Journey is more or less just my 2018 season. Um, okay. I think Embrace the Journey, it's where I, if, if you see something uploaded to YouTube or Facebook as the Embrace the Journey, that's my longer videos. It's going to be typically 25, 35, maybe even 45 or an hour, I don't know, where there's a lot of site visits involved, there's a lot of discussion involved, it may even be me discussing some of the top topographical maps of the property as to why I do things the way I'm doing them. Um, But it more or less, the embrace the journey part of it is to remind people that I think a lot of times we as hunters are very susceptible to associating our success or a season merely on whether or not we harvest that buck that we're after or do we fill a tag. Um, There is so much more to the journey in my opinion, that I think a lot of times we lose sight of. Um, Man, I just, I can't imagine that being the only thing that hinged for my season to be a success. You know, this last year I didn't harvest a buck, but 
I captured the biggest buck on film that I've ever passed and let walk on film. I filmed for the first time with an actual camera set up and camera arm and everything. Oh, and nice. I, I had some great encounters with some awesome bucks. I, I, I filmed more deer than I ever have in the past. I, I passed more bucks than I probably ever have in the past. But I didn't fill a tag. And to some people, that would be a very unsuccessful year. But, you know, I got to actually witness deer using my new, you know, the new 22 is still so new that I'm witnessing deer using the trails I cut them. You know, that bed that I described to you, the bedding area that they hadn't used in 2016 since I went in and cut the arteries and did it. Man, they were just using that bedding every single time I visited the property and hunted that area. Deer were coming and going out of it. And it's just, it's, it's, the embrace the journey part of it is to remind people to just take all that in and embrace it because that's what hunting really is, in my opinion. That's why we're obsessed with it. That's why we're addicted to it. It's not what we got hanging on our walls. It's who we share these journeys with and all the encounters, successful, unsuccessful. You know, those, those, those hunts where we drop our release to the ground and we have the biggest buck walk by us that we've ever seen in our life and we just have to watch it. Or we debate shooting it with our fingers. Um, it's things like that. And I think we overlook those. It's the off-season approaches. It's the visits to the property. It's the camera card pulls. It's everything and anything. It's doing a podcast with two guys from Michigan. You know, it, <laughs> it's all those things. And I think the hunting industry needs to be reminded of that. No, I, I think that, that that's very cool that, you know, because I think we all overlook that and we get too wrapped into it and we just got to take the time and, kind of embrace and realize what we're doing and what we're working on yeah yeah well the the first video was up on on ty's website i watched it um i love the name embrace the journey series that's uh you got that going for you, you got a cool name um, <laughs> it does make a difference <laughs> <laughs> no it sounds very uh nice and professional uh, i do fully agree i think that was well said ty um it it is very easy to get wrapped up in wrapping your tag around a buck, especially when all these Facebook pictures come up and everybody else in their gigantic bucks and, you right. know, add some stress to it, but, um, you know, the, the older I get, the more I let a lot of that go and just try to embrace the journey, buddy. I love it. Um, exactly, exactly. One key to doing that is ignore all your Iowa friends. Ah, there you go. That's a good point. <laughs> I don't have any Iowa friends yet, so that's easy to do. Um, don't ever compare. Yeah, don't compare yourself to Iowa because you'll never stand up to it. So, hey, we will soon. We just put it up for our tag. Yeah, we actually just nice. applied yesterday. Uh, we have three points each. Hopefully, we. Draw. Oh yeah, you'll draw. You'll draw. Oh, buddy, I hope so. Um, Shotgun? No, Bo. Oh yeah, you'll draw. I, I think three points pretty much gets you in every zone, but maybe one. And then even then, your odds are in your favor. I think we're in that Probably one. Probably the one so. we're going to. Yeah. <laughs> right, because I'm setting on three points right now. I'm going in 2020, late muzzleloader. And oh, right, right now, luckily, you only still need one point for that. So I'm debating a trip either this year or next year. Most likely, it'll be next year to do a DIY on public out there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that'll be probably better than anything we do here, right? So. Yes. Well, that's, yeah, that what, and you're going to film it, so I can't wait to see that, man. That's awesome. Um, oh, yeah, I'll take the camera. Heck, yeah. Now, is there anything else you want to cover? I know I have, like, one more quick question, but um, I want to make sure you uh, 
cover everything you want to cover, at least on this episode. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, first of all, I will be willing definitely to come back and talk to you guys. You can twist my ear about habitat, deer hunting, anytime you guys want. Yeah, um, but I don't know. I guess getting back to, I kind of touched on it, you know, where I said weeds aren't bad. A lot of guys, right now, this is the time of year where they're going out there and they're debating what they want to do for spring food plots. You know, do we want to throw soybeans in the ground? Do we want to, you know, what do you want to do? They may be hitting their clover chicory with clothed Um, You know, I don't worry necessarily if my food plots are dirty, if you will. You know, if they, obviously if I have soybeans and I've got just an exorbitant amount of weeds growing in them that are actually detrimental to the growth of the soybeans, I will you know, I use Roundup Ready soybeans, um, uh, and I do believe, not to name drop anything, but real world soybeans is what I use, because I'm sure some of your listeners are probably wondering. Uh, but I won't worry about herbicide treatment of weeds as much. I mean, elderberry, arrow, or not, sorry, I was reading, those are, those are uh, uh, woody brows, but things like ragweed, if I have a seed bank that explodes with ragweed, I embrace that. Oh, my gosh. Ragweed is one of the most drought-tolerant, high-crude protein, nutrient-dense weeds that Mother Nature and God designed for the deer. I have videos of deer just annihilating the ragweed in my uh, soybean plot last year. I mean, the deer are literally just pounding that stuff. And it's in the dead of summer when it's been a drought. So just kind of hold steady on, you know, automatically labeling all weeds as bad. I guess it would be my only thing to kind of leave with your listeners. And if you have any questions about that, feel free to email me, smallyourhunting at gmail.com, or a book that I, again, I call the gospel of books. Craig Harper's uh, Guide to Early Successional Growth is just amazing. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I don't think we mentioned the title of that book earlier, so nice job there. Uh, Jess, do you have anything else before I ask my final question? I'm building it up like it's going to be a big, huge question. It's, it's really yeah. not, <laughs> This better be a good question. Not really. Uh, go ahead. No, no, man. It's just uh, it, it was nice to get your take on these small pieces because that's kind of what I grew up hunting and um, and hunting currently. Hopefully, I hit the lotto this Friday so I can buy a mega farm. But um, <laughs> no, man. I, I think I, I have no more questions. All so right. Let's hear it. Drum roll. Drum roll. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm just curious. I asked this a couple other guests as well. What's your favorite tree to plant? Oh. Ooh. <laughs> favorite tree to plant. Oh, man, that's a multitude of different avenues. If I'm, do you shoot? I shoot, currently, I shoot currently at Elite 32. All right. Currently. Um I, I did. I did. I did shoot a Matthew, Matthews Triax the other day, and I'm not gonna lie. I may be jumping back on that bandwagon because that bow is insane. That bow is um, insane. Wow. Uh, most likely, knowing me, I'm cheap. I'll probably buy it next year when it's a little cheaper. But uh, let's see. If I'm going food, I'm going chestnut crab apple. Chestnut crab apple. Cool. Okay. I I absolutely love that tree. It's a quick grower. Um, I've got currently four of them in the ground, I think, in my fruit plot that is surrounded by clover, chicory, and islands of cover near the bedding area that I described with that parallel uh, trail in that bed. Uh, if I'm going 
if I'm going, I do like Norway. Sorry, Norway spruces. Um, I love Norway spruces for their site blocking or their thermal cover. If you're going to plant stuff, I prefer those over white pine. I prefer them over cedar. I don't like cedar trees because the cedar apple rust, um, they can interfere with your apple trees some. But I love Norway spruces. They are a little slower to grow than some, some evergreens, but I do love those for that aspect of it. If I'm going nut trees, I'll go chestnut. So I really kind of cheated and gave you three trees when you only wanted one. See, I think that was a good question, guys. Come on. That, that was a good question. Maybe not the, yeah, we'll the drum roll worthy, but, you know. All right. Well, we'll I, give it to you. <laughs> I appreciate it. Uh, Ty, thanks again. I really appreciate your time. I know we had to reschedule a couple times, so thank you so much. Um, how can everybody find you if they want to look up your stuff? give you uh, or uh, send you an email, etc. Sure. Uh, Email-wise is smallacrehunting at gmail.com. Uh, you can find me on Facebook at smallacrehunting and then www.smallacrehunting.com. Those are the three main ways. I do have an Instagram out there somewhere, but I don't think I've tested in a while, so I probably shouldn't even get that <laughs> up. But uh, those are the three main ways. Um Facebook, I would definitely tell your followers to check on because anything and everything that I do, even if it's a small, short, one-minute video, gets uploaded to Facebook. It may not always make it to the website or YouTube just because of the size of it or something like that. So. Okay. Um, and that actually reminds me, did you have something you wanted to cover about a giveaway? Oh, yeah, good call. Good good remembrance there. I actually got uh, some products sent my way a while back, and anybody that shares this podcast, whether it be through Habitat uh, Podcast Facebook page or the Small If You're Hunting Facebook page, I will communicate with, uh, with you guys and Jared, and we'll talk about who shared it, and we'll just randomly draw a, a person. They're going to win a 100-grain, muzzy, three-blade pack of brand-new broadheads that I'm holding right now looking at. So those will be coming to somebody who all you got to do is share the podcast on your private Facebook page. Awesome. That's wow, cool. Man. Yeah, great idea. Thanks for doing that. That's, uh, Jess, that's our first giveaway, right? Yeah. So get off your butt and start sharing, man. Yeah, <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks, Ty. That's a good idea. I know uh, I'm pretty sure that's the first broadhead I ever screwed to an arrow, so... Yep, I love fixed blades. Um, I've shot Muzzy some. I don't shoot them currently, but that doesn't downplay their success. They are awesome broadheads. They will do the job. All right. Well, we will get that information up uh, when we post the podcast. It should be rolling out uh, the 10th of May. That's probably when I roll it out. So got some editing to do, and we'll get that up. Thanks again, Ty. Uh, Jesse, appreciate it as always. And um, that's all for me. Hey, we'll talk to you guys soon. All right, guys. God bless. Thanks for having me on. Anytime, Take care. Thanks. Well, that's another uh, podcast in the books with uh, Ty Miller at Small Acre Hunting. Um, man, what a character! What a, what a guy! What knowledgeable stuff he had to say. That was that was uh, that was a good good interview right there. Yeah, he uh, he's a younger guy too. I mean. I'm a total rookie compared to that, and we have uh, we fit a lot of information in that last hour, hour and twenty minutes or whatever. So I'm excited to get it out to the listeners, man. Yeah, yeah, we'll have to uh, 
share some of his uh, pictures and some of his farm aerials, show them out to the listeners. But, yeah, no, that was awesome. Um, why don't you uh, go ahead and tell the listeners where they can find us? Yes, sir. I want to thank everybody again for uh, for listening. Uh, pay attention to the giveaway on the Facebook page. Um, and then the Facebook page, you can look us up. It's Habitat Podcast. We also are on the Stitcher app, the Apple Podcast app. You just go on both of those and search Habitat Podcast will pop up. Do us a favor, go ahead and subscribe, uh, leave us a review, that way you get notified when the next uh, podcast comes out right away. And last but not least, our website, habitatpodcast.com, every episode is up on there too. Um, you can give us your email, we'll send you out these podcasts when they come out. Um, you can contact us about being a possible guest maybe, or maybe some topics, Um it's just a good way to get a hold of us. So thank you again for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Catch you later. Captain Justin Leake and Meredith McCord for the best fishing action along Panama City Beach. Tune in to Chasing the Sun every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Mule there, baby, right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.